space race of the 1950s and 60s was a 20-year period of competition between the capitalist United States and the communist Soviet Union over who could conquer space first. It wasn't just two idiots comparing who had the biggest rocket, though. As well as driving forward technology, the space race had a profound and lasting effect on popular culture. From literature, to TV, to film, it fundamentally changed how the future of humanity was depicted. In this episode, we explore how the space race radically changed the genre of science fiction. So, two superpowers spent heroic amounts of money trying to get into space. Space, as any astronomer will tell you, is cold, dark, and at least 62 miles from the nearest pub. Why did they bother then? Well, to answer that, we'll need to rewind a little to... 5th of March, 1946. The Second World War was finally over. However, much of the world was smoking rubble, and it still wasn't clear how the victorious allies would reform this brave new world. The uneasy alliance between the United States, France and Great Britain on the one hand, and the Soviet Union on the other, was unravelling. The Western Alliance and the Soviets eyed each other nervously, like two dining partners vying for the last bread roll. It was a pleasantly warm spring day in the small midwestern town of Fulton, Missouri. A British politician had been invited by US President Truman to give a speech at Westminster College, which was in the President's home state. The plump, elderly British politician cleared his throat, straightened his waistcoat, took to the stage and began to address his audience. Recently rejected by British voters, he gave a speech which packed a formidable punch. Although this speech was formally titled The Sinews of Peace, its most widely quoted sentence is this. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line, lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. As was usual with Winston Spencer Churchill, the speech was full of soaring rhetoric, inspiring sentiments and expansive, sometimes doubtful claims. Including the rather questionable claim that World War II could have easily been prevented if people had only listened to him earlier. Churchill was enormously popular in America, cheered as the hero of the Second World War. According to the British Embassy, his dramatically blunt review of the world situation, made a profound impact and unofficially aligned the UK with the United States. In Moscow, however, Stalin commented that Mr. Churchill and his friends bear a striking resemblance to Hitler and his friends, assuring the Soviet people that the broad masses in Britain did not support him. The Soviet Union had begun already to establish socialist governments in the countries of Eastern Europe, determined to safeguard against a possible renewed threat from Germany. And the Western Alliance worried that Soviet domination in Eastern Europe might be permanent. This speech is widely regarded by historians as the opening shot of the Cold War. Each side got more and more distrustful of the other. In 1948, the Soviet Union blockaded Berlin, forcing the Western Allies to airlift food in to prevent millions of Berliners starving to death. And yes, I'm aware a Berliner is a type of donut. Please don't message me. This is the story of the airlift of the Joint Army-Navy-Air Force effort, which is delivering to Berlin by air up to 90% as much freight as went by rail before the Russian blockade. To tell it, Warner Pathé News now rides the airlift with the U.S. Navy. It's one of as many as 900 flights a day, around the clock and in any weather. The Cold War peaked in the 50s, and two monstrous superstates stared at each other nervously. 
each one wired and twitchy, holding enough nuclear firepower to wipe out millions of people in a few seconds. Both sides were now in a rather sticky situation. They needed to impress their own citizens, their rivals and their friends and drive forward technology, but ideally without starting a war that would end all life on the planet. And there's only one thing more expensive, dramatic and technically challenging than war, and that's going and doing cool stuff in space. The first aim of this space race was the launching of an unmanned object, a satellite which could successfully orbit the Earth. Seems easy enough to me. Bit of sheet metal, few fireworks, bit of gaffer tape, job's good. Well, that's what the USA thought when they announced it in 1954. So when the Soviet Union announced on October the 4th, 1957, that they had successfully launched a satellite, the American public freaked. Scott Hubbard of NASA explains. We were convinced as Americans because we had so convincingly won World War II that we were the dominant power in the world. We had to be. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here was this first man-made satellite being orbited by our arch enemy. So this was an enormous event. The launch of this satellite, Sputnik, brought the reality of the Cold War into people's lounges. Brian C. Odom, chief historian for NASA, explains. When Sputnik launches, President Eisenhower doesn't see it as an existential threat. He sees it as just what it was, the Soviet Union launching a transceiver transmitter into orbit. But the American public saw it differently because they saw it as this larger Cold War competition. Not only did the Soviets launch the first satellite, they also launched the first Earthling. At two years old, 13 pounds in weight and fond of kibble and belly rubs, Laika was launched on Sputnik 2 on November 3, 1957. She was one of a number of stray dogs that were taken into the Soviet spaceflight program after being rescued from the streets. Laika trained for life on board the satellite by learning to accept progressively smaller living spaces. She was spun in a centrifuge to a customer to changes in gravity, and she learned to accept food in a jellied form that could be easily served in an environment of weightlessness. When the launch was announced, Laika became an international celebrity, and rightly so. The satellite and its passenger were christened Mutnik by the press. Sadly, in the best Russian tradition, this mission was crew expendable. There was never any way of recovering the satellite, and Soviet accounts said she was euthanized several days into the mission. Sadly, the truth is even more depressing. She only survived for about seven hours before passing from overheating and panic. Apparently, Soviet scientists just hadn't had time to perfect life support systems. This was because of intense political pressure to launch Sputnik 2 in time for the 40th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Laika eventually got the statue she richly deserved in 2008. R.I.P. Laika, space hero and good girl. Now you will excuse me, it's, it's actually very dusty in here and I need to take a moment. Now at this point in the space race, the Soviets were at the first water station while the USA was still trying to tie their laces. So, what to do? Well, there were some sensible responses by the government, such as founding NASA on the 1st of October 1958, as well as commissioning sensible organisations full of sensible people with sensible haircuts. There were also some less sensible responses from some quarters. So, imagine you're a US Air Force planner and you're working on the rather knotty problem of what to do about those sneaky Russians. What plan would you cook up to demonstrate that America was still number one? Well, if you said, let's nuke the moon, then amazingly, you're actually correct. 
Also, please email your address to culturechronicles@outlook.com, and some nice men in white coats will be along to take you on a nice holiday with the really good drugs very shortly. After Russia successfully launched Sputnik, the US Air Force got so spooked that they drafted up Project A119, a super-duper secret plan to shoot a nuclear missile at the moon. It wasn't just some insane General Jack D. Ripper coming up with the plan, though. Among the members of the research team were famous astronomer Gerald Cooper and his doctoral student Carl Sagan. You're saying to yourself at this point, at least I hope you are, that's completely insane. Why on earth would anyone shoot a nuke at the moon? To scare the Soviets, obviously. Fortunately for us, the moon and Wallace and Gromit's grand day out, the project was never actually carried out. It was cancelled after Air Force officials rather dryly observed that its risks outweighed its benefits. The army weren't about to be outdone in the pants-on-head crazy plan competition, though. No siree. They took one look at the Air Force's plan, said, Ha! Hold my beer. Then they sat down with a napkin and a pack of crayons and scrawled Project Horizon across the top. Lieutenant General Arthur G. Trudeau, no relation to Justin, was hoping for a military outpost on the moon by 1966. This project focused on being able to deploy nuclear weapons from the lunar surface down to Earth, because frankly it's not a Cold War plan unless it's got at least one nuclear weapon in it. The underground moon base would be powered by two nuclear reactors and staffed by 42 soldiers doing one-year tours. The scientific benefits to this military outpost were a nice bonus, but they weren't actually the main objective. I'm not going to lie, a, a year's tour on the moon sounds kind of hellish. And unlike a similar tour on Earth, it's also pretty unlikely that you'd be able to buy fake Rolexes and knock off DVDs from the locals to pass the time. You're probably thinking to yourself, dear oh dear, Bond films are getting worse and worse. And you'd be absolutely correct, of course. But at the height of the Cold War, this plan was absolutely dead serious. Inevitably, planners realised how insanely expensive a nuclear-powered moon outpost loaded with nuclear missiles would be. Fortunately, Again, in 1967, the United Nations laid some ground rules in a space treaty and ended the discussion completely. And the plan didn't appear again until Steve Carell basically copied it in 2020's Space Force on Netflix. Unpopular opinion? Not the worst thing on TV. Nuking the moon is kinda hard to top and the middle bit of the space race in the early 60s was slightly less dramatic. The US was continually playing catch-up, with the Soviets putting the first man into orbit about a month before the Americans even got someone into space. 27-year-old Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin got humanity's first trip around everyone's favourite blue planet on 12th of April 1961. Following the flight, Gagarin became a celebrity within the Soviet Union and indeed all across the world. However, he was kept from returning to space. This was due to the authorities' fears that, were there to be an accident, they could lose a useful propaganda tool. We've actually been very Soviet-focused so far. That's mostly because the USA spent most of the 50s and 60s playing catch-up. They did manage to get astronaut Alan Shepard into space in May 1961 and John Glenn into orbit in 1962. And although they're in the history books, their names are much less famous than Laika and Yuri Gagarin. Like sport, and some would say like life, no one's really that interested in who gets the silver medal. However, all of these people were utterly overshadowed by what came next. US President John F. Kennedy famously said, I'm not that interested in space. But what he was interested in is winning the Cold War. 
Kennedy asked his vice president at the time, Lyndon B. Johnson, how the US could score a win against the Soviets. Johnson, in fact, had long been a space advocate, saying in 1958, Control of space is control of the world. One of the best ways to show US dominance, Johnson reported back, was by sending a manned mission to the moon. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Now I'm sure we'd all agree that being ambitious is a very good thing. However, when JFK gave that speech in 1961, the USA had only just got a man into space. Getting a man on the moon was likely to be humanity's most difficult, expensive project so far, and getting them back again was going to be even trickier. I'm no rocket scientist, as anyone who's marked any of my maths or engineering work will tell you. However, getting a human, plus vehicle, plus instruments to the moon and back is a significant engineering challenge. You need a vehicle strong enough to survive the journey, and land, and provide the crew with enough air, heating, cooling, and power. But above all, you need to accelerate fast enough to get away from the Earth and then decelerate at the other end so you don't pancake the craft into the moon at 14,000 miles an hour. As a little detour, let's have a look at where these massive rockets came from. Fortunately, or not so fortunately, depending on your perspective, there was a plentiful supply of rocket scientists available after the Second World War. The Nazis had a significant rocketry program in the later stages which eventually produced a long-range missile called the V-2. Having just won the runners-up prize, the Nazi rocket scientists were out of work in 1945 and looking for a job. And this is where Operation Paperclip comes in. This was a mad scramble by the Allies to scoop up as many Nazi scientists as they could, like a particularly well-armed high-stakes version of Pokemon. And while the USA didn't manage to catch them all, they did manage to get the rocket scientist equivalent of Mewtwo. Here to reveal a plan for a trip around the moon is Dr. Werner von Braun. A voyage around the moon must be made in two phases. A rocket ship taking off from the Earth's surface will use almost all the fuel it can carry just to attain a speed great enough to balance the pull of gravity. Rocking an impeccably pressed, double-breasted suit, tidy haircut and slide rule, rocket engineer Dr. Werner von Braun cuts a suave, authoritative figure in Disney's 1955 television special, Man and the Moon. And if you thought Disney produced some odd stuff these days, this is the sort of thing they were producing in the 50s and 60s. Speaking with a rather obvious German accent, he uses a series of models and illustrations to explain how America will reach the moon. With the aid of an enormous nuclear-powered space station, of course. Well, it was the Cold War after all. We will establish an advanced base in the orbit, a thousand miles above the Earth. This advanced base, or space station, will be headquarters for the final ascent to the moon. Just below the radio and radar antenna is the atomic reactor. Hmm, shades of Marvin the Martian there. Due to his slightly dodgy past, his legacy is not without controversy. That's Von Braun's legacy I'm talking about there, not Marvin the Martian's. Marvin the Martian's legacy is beyond reproach. Although he's probably the most famous example, there were countless other Nazi scientists involved in the space race. Without their early work on indiscriminate weaponry for some of history's worst villains, it's likely the space program would have gone nowhere fast. And it's another great example of how history sometimes throws up these really difficult moral questions. Okay, enough little details. What were the USA doing to get themselves to the moon and back? 
At the time of Kennedy's proposal to go to the moon, only one American had even flown in space, less than a month earlier, and NASA had not even sent an astronaut into orbit. Plenty of NASA employees doubted whether Kennedy's ambitious goal could even be met. Kennedy himself even came close to agreeing a joint US-USSR moon mission to eliminate duplication of effort. However, by the mid-60s, the USA's space program was laser-focused on getting a crew of astronauts to the moon and back, ideally in one piece. This was known as the Apollo program, and it ran from 1961 to 1972. This program would eventually lead to the moon landings, but it almost never got off the ground. The program encountered a major setback in 1967 when a cabin fire killed the entire crew during a pre-launch test of Apollo 1. This very public and humiliating disaster almost ended the space program then and there, and as with many disasters, it potentially could have been avoided. In a review of the spacecraft made a week before delivery, the crew expressed concern about the amount of highly flammable nylon netting and Velcro in the cabin, which both the astronauts and technicians found pretty useful for holding tools and equipment in place. Previous space missions had used normal air in the cabin, but Apollo 1 was using pure oxygen to make the design work a little bit easier. Hey, we're gonna fire in the cockpit. Hey, we got a bad fire! That was a scene from 2018's First Man, based on the post-incident investigation and badly garbled radio transcripts. Although the cabin lights remained on, the rescue crew couldn't see the astronauts through the dense smoke. Because of the heat, the astronauts' suits, and anything else flammable, had melted. Large strands of melted nylon fused the astronauts to the cabin interior, and removing the bodies took nearly 90 minutes. The investigation blamed a combination of poor wiring, too much oxygen, too many combustible materials and a bad escape and rescue process for the disaster. Sadly, these lessons were learned too late to save astronauts Gus Grissom, Edward White and Roger Chaffee. However, it did change the culture at NASA. The chief flight director, Gene Kranz, called a meeting of his staff in mission control three days after the accident. He delivered a speech demanding nothing less than perfection throughout NASA's programs. Space flight's terribly unforgiving. Now, from this day forward, mission control will be known by two words, tough and competent. Tough meaning we will never again shirk from our responsibility because we're forever accountable for what we do. Competent, we'll never again take anything for granted. We'll never stop learning. You will write these two words on your blackboard and they will never be erased as a constant reminder to the sacrifice of Grissom, White, and Chaffee. Just like the sinking of the Titanic led to a step change in maritime safety, the Apollo 1 disaster changed NASA's attitude to standards in the space program. Safety and engineering excellence became job one, and this led to an unstoppable march towards the launch that would put humanity on the moon, Apollo 11. 16th of July 1969. It's a little over eight years since the flights of Gagarin and Shepard, and that was quickly followed by JFK's challenge to put a man on the moon before the decade was out. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins are sitting on top of the largest, most powerful rocket ever made, the Saturn V. Launching from the John F. Kennedy Space Center, this tin can of rocket fuel and liquid oxygen was seconds from propelling the Apollo 11 crew out of the atmosphere and into the history books. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. 
At 9.32am, the engines fire and Apollo 11 clears the tower. About 12 minutes later, the crew is in Earth orbit. A day later, Armstrong and Aldrin climb into the lunar craft Eagle and begin the descent, while Collins orbits in the command module Columbia. Collins described Eagle as the weirdest looking contraption I have ever seen in the sky. So he was probably pretty happy to stay in orbit. During the final seconds of descent, Eagle's computer started sounding alarms. Neil Armstrong, in the best tradition of aircrew and engineers everywhere, just wings it and takes manual control for the last few seconds of the descent. At the time, the Apollo guidance computer in charge of controlling the craft was a 30 kilo lump of copper, with about a quarter of the processing power of a Nintendo Entertainment System. The alarm turned out to be a simple case of the computer just trying to do too many things at once, but as Buzz Aldrin rather dryly observed, Unfortunately, it came up when we did not want to be trying to solve these particular problems. When Eagle lands at 4.17pm, only 30 seconds of fuel actually remain. Armstrong gets on the radio and says, Tranquility base here. Mission Control erupts in celebration as the tension breaks, and a controller tells the crew, Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. At 10.56pm, Armstrong is ready to plant the first human foot on another world. With more than half a billion people watching on television, he climbs down the ladder and proclaims the immortal words. Aldrin joins him shortly and offers a simple but powerful description of the lunar surface. Magnificent desolation. The two explore the surface for about two and a half hours, collecting samples and taking photographs. They leave behind an American flag, a patch honouring the fallen Apollo 1 crew, and a plaque on one of Eagle's legs. The plaque reads, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon. July 1969 AD we came in peace for all mankind. Over the next three and a half years, 10 astronauts will follow in their footsteps. Gene Cernan, commander of the last Apollo mission, leaves the lunar surface with these words, we leave as we came and, God willing, as we shall return, with peace and hope for all mankind. Although no one ever set an official finish line for the space race, this moment is generally regarded as the end of it. Despite a late start, the USA finished strong and were declared the winner. The USSR were unfortunately shooed away with the fat wheezy kids and given participation stickers. The moral of the story is, you don't get a prize for being mean to dogs. That's a really flippant, rapid run-through of one of humanity's greatest achievements. But now we'll go on to the actually important bit. How did the space race shape the genre of science fiction? Now, sci-fi is one of my favourite genres of fiction, and not just because I'm a tragic nerd when it comes to technology. Picking the best sci-fi book, film or TV show is a really big ask though. The sci-fi that appeals to one person won't necessarily appeal to another. For example, one of my favourite science fiction films is currently sat at 33% on Metacritic, 2002's Equilibrium. Starring Christian Bale, Emily Watson and Sheffield's greatest export, Sean Bean. The film follows an enforcement officer in a future in which feelings and artistic expression are outlawed, and citizens take daily injections of powerful psychoactive drugs to suppress their emotions. In this scene, Christian Bale confronts Sean Bean for the capital crime of reading poetry. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly. 
Very sadly, and as always, Sean Bean dies. But many would argue that reading poetry aloud in public justifies being shot in the face. Now, what does this have to do with the space race? And the answer is absolutely nothing. But I've included it to show that the genre can sometimes be derivative, or cheap, or silly, but still do what sci-fi does at its core. And that is to use fantastic scenarios to hold a mirror up to us, as we are now, and ask what could or would we be in different circumstances. As a genre, it often gets lumped in with fantasy because it imagines similar what-if questions. The space race answered many of the what-if questions of the time, and it prompted humanity to ask itself many new ones. And as such, it caused dramatic changes in the genre, just like the advent of AI is doing today. So how did humanity's journey to the stars, uh, the nearest satellite rather, influence the genre? Firstly, sci-fi aims to expand our horizons and imagine what might be possible in The world of tomorrow! The problem is those horizons shift depending on what the people of the time can imagine. And older science fiction tends to imagine a much smaller universe. Many people assume that sci-fi is a modern genre due to its focus on technology. However, I was pretty surprised to find it's actually been around for a long time. Like sanitation? underfloor heating and other cool stuff, it was actually invented by the ancient Romans. Or Turks. Or maybe Syrians, depending on your perspective. It all started around 150 AD with a Syrian writer called Lucian, about whom we know virtually nothing. He lived on the bank of the Euphrates in what is now Turkey, but was, at the time, part of the Roman province of Syria. Lucian has quite a good claim to being the inventor of two literary genres, one of which is sci-fi. In his witty tale, A True History, Lucian effectively parodies the far-fetched travel writings of the day. Classical explorers of the day usually wrote outlandish nonsense, quite frankly, and they never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Lucian, rather brilliantly, turns this on its head by admitting up front that his story is absolute bobbins from start to finish. Clearly an early troll, his intention was to mock the absolute nonsense written by other writers. In his story, his ship gets blown to the moon by a cyclone. The king of the moon is at war with the king of the sun over the colonization of Venus. The solar army includes ants over 200 feet long, giant mosquitoes, and an army of, quote, sky dancers, end quote. What are sky dancers? I've absolutely no idea. All I know is they throw large radishes at the enemy, causing them to collapse and die of a, quote, malodorous but unspecified wound. If you're thinking Lucian had been at the mushrooms, you're probably not alone, but this story, along with other examples, is fairly typical of pre-60s science fiction. It tends to imagine humanity travelling to local places like our star, planets and satellites. This is the galactic equivalent of popping to Lidl for a pint of space milk. A lot of earlier sci-fi didn't even get off the planet. Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, for example, is about hunting a mysterious sea monster that has been terrorising shipping lanes. During this hunt, they encounter the enigmatic Captain Nemo and his submarine, the Nautilus, and they're taken captive as the captain explores the depths of the ocean. You are from the warship that attacked me, are you not? Yes. We were under the impression that this was a monster, not a craft of human invention. Take the others on deck. I demand a fair trial. You've had your trial. The sea brought you. The sea shall have you back. I will grant you to both of them, and me too, and listen to drag down... What we thought to be a monster. 
But in that case, we are no more guilty than the rest of the world. I would consider that guilty enough. There are countless examples of early sci-fi that involve travel to nearby locations. For example, From the Earth to the Moon, published in 1865, tells the story of a group of men who build a giant cannon to shoot themselves to the moon. Another great, if slightly potty example, is Rocket Ship Galileo. This is by one of my favourite authors, Robert Heinlein, and it was published in 1947. The novel follows a group of teenagers who build a homemade rocket and travel to the moon, where they discover a secret Nazi base. Frankly, it's the greatest pitch I've ever heard and deserves six seasons in a movie. In short though, stories about travelling beyond the solar system were virtually unheard of before the 20th century and were pretty exceptional prior to the 1950s. Even the golden age of science fiction, the 30s and 40s, primarily focused on local travel. However, people in the 1960s stopped seeing the moon as part of a far future fantasy and saw it as something that could quickly become part of daily life. Margaret Weitkampf, a historian at the National Air and Space Museum, stated in an interview for Astronomy.com, Portrayals focused on the reality of what's going on and realistic space programs tend to fall away in the 1960s because they can't really compete with the real thing. And so what you get are more extrapolated visions of what spaceflight could be. Once humanity started taking steps towards the moon, it was clear that creators were going to have to work a little bit harder to capture people's attention and no discussion of sci-fi would be complete without discussing probably the most influential genre TV show of all time, 1965's Star Trek. Space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Ah, Star Trek. I remember when it used to be good before Patrick Stewart ruined it. Because it was written at a time when the moon was within reach, it needed to move the action beyond their solar system to add a sense of danger and adventure. Each weekly episode took place light years from Earth, allowing for exploration and discovery. This theme of exploration has inspired many other science fiction stories, particularly those dealing with space travel. Because the crew were far removed from Earth, the show had to introduce a number of technologies and sci-fi staples just to make the plot workable. Because of this, the show popularised many sci-fi tropes that we enjoy today, such as faster-than-light travel through warp drive and teleportation through transporters. Some of these were just convenient plot devices, but some of them were just for ease of production. The transporter, for example, was far easier and therefore cheaper to animate than landing a spaceship. The show's creator, Gene Roddenberry, sold it to producers as a western in outer space. But he privately told friends that he was actually going for more of a Gulliver's Travels angle. Each episode was going to work on two levels, a swashbuckling space adventure story and a morality tale. A lot of the uniqueness and influence of Star Trek is underpinned by the fact that the crew is operating alone, far beyond their solar system. And this remoteness was driven by the space race rendering our nearby destinations just a little bit too pedestrian for TV. The franchise eventually peaked with Deep Space Nine and it's been all downhill since then. I will die on this hill. Post Space Race, authors and directors massively expanded their horizons beyond the solar system. There are countless examples of this, but one of my absolute favourites is the 1985 Carl Sagan novel, Contact. Yes, that's the same guy who worked on the plan to nuke the moon. Made into a criminally underrated film in 1997, it's the story of Dr. Ellie Arroway, a radio astronomer who receives a mysterious message from an unknown extraterrestrial intelligence. 
The message contains instructions for building a machine that can transport a human being to a distant star system. This detection of an unidentified radio source from deep space can neither be confirmed nor denied. Whatever it is, it ain't local. Position? I checked into barometry somewhere in Lyra, I think. Uh, Vega? Can't be! It's only 26 light years away! Don't they just speak English? Mathematics is the only truly universal language center. Those look like engineering schematics, almost like blueprints. It is our belief that the message contains instructions for building some kind of a transport. Never let it be said that astronomy and mathematics isn't exciting. The novel explores many interesting themes, including the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the sometimes strange relationship between science and religion, and the nature of human consciousness. It's a particularly notable novel for its scientific accuracy and its attention to detail. This reflects Sagan's background as an astronomer and also as a science communicator. But it's yet another example that relies on locations beyond their solar system to add a sense of adventure and wonder something that became necessary as home became a little bit too familiar. This change of horizons wasn't the only thing about the space race that influenced science fiction, though. During the 50s, Americans started to see space as the new frontier, the next thing to explore in progression of their national story. As we previously discussed, the space race primarily was about getting an advantage over the other world power. This was because both the United States and Soviet Union wanted to use space for military purposes, but also to conquer it as a propaganda coup. And because of this tense, high-stakes background to the space race, the movies of this period really reflected the deep-rooted hopes and fears of the time. For example, 1967's Countdown. This is the control room for the rocket that will take a man to the moon. A man is going to the moon. A man will land on the moon. Scenes like this will make the biggest news of our time. It's coming. It's certain. It will be soon. The countdown has started. Going to automatic sequence. We're giving you four seconds to start lifting after commit. Otherwise abort. This was the first feature film directed by Robert Altman, who I've mentioned on the podcast before. The film is set during the early days of the space race, when both the United States and the Soviet Union were competing to launch the first manned mission to the moon. The plot is driven forward by the USA being bounced into launching the mission with an inexperienced crew way before it's ready. This was caused in the film by the Soviets launching much earlier than expected. And this is a brilliant reflection of just how anxious the US were about being second to those dirty reds as well as a uh, performance anxiety about being second, there was also a real justified fear about Soviet aggression. The space race was basically liquid-fueled multi-billion dollar peacocking, and the only safe way the two sides could really compete. But Russia hasn't always been the upstanding, peaceful pillar of the international community we know and love today. At the time, NATO was genuinely worried about the prospect of war with Russia. And this angst was reflected in the absolute deluge of movies featuring an alien invasion by little green men. Many of these films were produced in the 1950s and 60s, during a period of heightened Cold War anxieties and fears about nuclear war. The threat of an alien invasion served as a metaphor for these fears, and many of these films depicted aliens as malevolent, unstoppable forces bent on destroying humanity. Some of the most famous movies about alien invasion include 1956's Invasion of the Body Snatchers and 1953's The War of the Worlds, both absolutely groundbreaking in their writing and special effects and well worth watching if you can find them. However, one of the best reflection of the absolutely bonkers atmosphere of the time is the 1959 B-movie Plan 9 from Outer Space. Bullet. 
bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ships. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now. Plan 9 shows us plucky humans using our God-given right to build a doomsday weapon. Rather rudely, the dastardly aliens don't like this, and they come up with an evil scheme to stop us. This scheme involves reanimating corpses by jump-starting their brains with lasers in order to inspire an undead uprising with which to overthrow humanity. It's considered by many people to be one of the worst films ever made, and it's known for its low-budget, very cheesy special effects and its unintentionally hilarious dialogue. You have seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? Perhaps on your way home, someone will pass you in the dark, and you will never know it, for they will be from outer space. Many scientists believe that another world is watching us this moment. This is a film firmly in the so-bad-it's-great category and is definitely a product of the tense, paranoid and possibly drunk atmosphere of the 1950s. Yeah, it's terrible, but I don't know how much worse it is than the latest Star Wars films. The final and possibly most profound change that the space race made was the showcasing of radical new technologies. We've already seen two fictional examples from Star Trek, now let's look at something both real and genuinely revolutionary. Not only did it change science fiction, its popularisation is arguably responsible for the biggest shifts in society of the last 100 years. Before 1950 or so, most people would look at you pretty blankly if you said the word computer. The PCs that make the modern workplace such a joyful, productive place didn't actually appear on desks until the 70s so the term computer was generally only used by a few nerds to describe a massive, inscrutable box in the basement of government agencies. Computers actually appeared in fiction centuries before they materialised as working devices, though. The first fictional computer was called The Machine, and it appears in Jonathan Swift's 1726 satire, Gulliver's Travels. It was 20 feet square, placed in the middle of the room. Several bits of wood were all linked together by slender wires. These bits of wood were covered, on every square, with paper pasted on them, and on these papers were written all the words of their language, in their several moods, tenses, and declensions, but without any order. By the early 20th century, the standard fictional computer was the brain of a robot, usually embodied as a tin man. The stereotype was TikTok, the thought-creating, perfect, talking mechanical man, equipped with improved combination steel brains in Al Frank Baum's Osmer of Oz from 1907. When asked whether he is alive, TikTok responds, No, I am only a machine, but I can think and speak and act. Which makes him about half as creepy as the modern version of TikTok. So something that looks like a computer has been around in fiction for a while, but as a great pub quiz question, when did the term computer start being used to mean an electronic device? Well, the earliest citation in the Oxford English Dictionary is from 1946. As well as an electronic brain, the term computer was also often used to refer to human beings who performed complex calculations by hand. Before the wide availability of electronic computers, complex mathematical calculations were often carried out by teams of mathematicians who would spend hours or even days working out complex equations and other mathematical problems. This is brilliantly portrayed in 2016's Hidden Figures. 
In 14 days, astronauts will be here for training. And we're shooting a human into space, and it's never been done before. With the launch of the Russian spy satellite, the president is demanding an immediate response. Running from the man. Space test group needs a computer. Catherine's the gal for that. She can handle any numbers you put in front of her. You and I are different from each other. This is about inventing the math. Because without it, we're not going anywhere. Yes, sir. Now I'm cheating a little bit here because it's not really sci-fi, but it is a fascinating, if slightly dramatised, bit of hidden history about the role of women and African Americans in the space programme. To get to the moon and back, NASA needed more than human brain power though. Leaps forward in computing meant that the word computer entered the public consciousness and it ended up as a shorthand for thinking machine, and not necessarily one that looked like the Tin Man off The Wizard of Oz. Although the space program wasn't the only driver for leaps forward in computing, it was certainly one of the best funded with the highest profile. Take this example from the Apollo program's forerunner, Mercury. Far to the north and east of Corpus Christi beats the heart of the worldwide Mercury network. This is the Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. The computers enable men to reach judgment within the flashes of time allowed for control of a spacecraft that moves faster than a brain can react. In general, the space race helped to create a cultural fascination with the idea of advanced technology and computers, which in turn fueled the growth of science fiction as a genre. As computers became more ubiquitous in society, they became an increasingly common feature in science fiction. I'm not going to talk about Star Trek again, please relax. But I am going to talk about one of the greatest villains in movie and literary history, that reflected both the popular interest in computers and the generalised angst of the time. HAL from 2001 A Space Odyssey Based on a 1951 short story by Arthur C. Clarke, the 1968 novel and film feature an intelligent computer named HAL 9000. HAL is responsible for controlling a spacecraft on a mission to Jupiter, and HAL's character was inspired by the real-world advances in artificial intelligence and especially computer technology that were being made at the time. The novel and the film helped to popularise the idea of intelligent computers that were capable of making decisions and taking actions on their own. The film was directed by the late, great, and completely insane Stanley Kubrick. If you haven't heard what the guy was like to work for, I recommend you Google it, because you're in for an absolute treat. Despite the theme of a computer going rogue, there were absolutely no digital effects used in this film. They didn't actually appear until 1973's Westworld. The use of practical effects and an utterly obsessive director mean that, although the aesthetic is a little 60s, 2001 really has aged like a fine wine and it really stands up today. Although this was by no means the first fictional depiction of a computer going absolutely bonkers and trying to kill all humans, it was one of the first to break through into mainstream consciousness. In this scene, the human astronauts are considering shutting Hal down because of his frequent mistakes. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. Despite being the 1960s equivalent of Clippy, Hal is not out to be helpful at this point and makes a fair few attempts to save himself by killing the human crew. These attempts include setting life pods adrift and shutting down life support. It was the 60s though, so the gallant human crew saved the day. They shut Hal down using the extremely high-tech and sophisticated method of ripping all his circuit boards out. Look, Dave. 
I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over. Stop, day. I'm afraid my mind is going. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer to... Something that many people have dreamed of doing in the office, I know I have. This film really lent into the mood of the time, and it was only really possible because of how well-known the space race was. It was also a great example of the dangers of rogue AI, and why humanity shouldn't really expect computers to solve all of our problems. But that's a story for another time. That's all for this week, my friends. I really hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed writing it. If you did enjoy it, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. If you have comments, ideas, or just want to discuss how HAL 9000 may actually have had a point, please tweet to Pod or culturechronicles at outlook.com. I'm Khan and I've been your host. Stay safe and have a story-filled week. Polish humans. Oh yes, Kodos. Earth is now ripe for the plucking. <laughs> <laughs>